I'm Adri, and welcome to BAC Law Society's exclusive podcast series called Legal Lounge, where we talk all about legal issues and law students' life. Today's episode will be about practice versus academia, a question which most students ponder about after graduating from law school, or maybe during your internships, who knows. These are some of the popular career choices which law students would go for, and thus it is important to understand the differences between them in order to make informed decisions so you don't regret for the rest of your life. Therefore, we have invited lecturers from BAC to elaborate more on this topic. Let's give it up for our amazing BAC lecturers who have taken their time to answer our burning questions. Dr. Sanjita and Mr. Andrew. Woo, say hi to the family. Thank you. Hello. So, okay. Hi, Dr. Sanjita and Mr. Andrew. Before we start, thank you very much for taking your time to be with us today. And you could have been doing something else because the weekend's tomorrow. And we are so honored to have you on BAC Law Society's very first episode of Legal Lounge. Before we begin, would it be okay if you introduce yourself to the audience, to those who might not be familiar with you? Let's start with Dr. Sanjita. Hi guys, my name is Dr. Sanjita. I teach on the UOL and UKT program, uh, namely Law of Evidence and uh, Conflict of Laws. Hi, I'm Andrew. Uh, I teach company law uh, for the UOL program. I also um, head the legal department of a fairly well-known e-wallet in the country. I wonder how many e-wallet companies are there in this country. <laughs> 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 That's okay. There are a few. <laughs> All right, thank you very much for introducing yourselves. So now we'll move on to the main questions. And there will be questions for Mr. Andrew only and Dr. Sanjita only, which I will specify. And there will also be general questions. So the first question is for Mr. Andrew. Could you give a brief overview on what happens after law school in order for one to practice law? I assume you mean after CLP, not just after LB, like after you have you know, all the necessary paper credentials to go into practice. Um, well, then I suppose life begins. Uh, you will firstly find that um, whilst your degree and CLP provides you a foundation, and it is a strong foundation, you will find that um, there will be a lot more practical problems that you will be expected to solve that are not quite in your textbooks. Uh, it's whether you like uh, having legal practice as a career will depend on how much you kind of enjoy, um, how much you enjoy these problems. Um, to be honest, most clients are not going to come to you, you know, asking you about separate legal personality, concept of offer and acceptance. It will be something very highly practical for which you either have to think creatively or leverage on um, your seniors or your partner's uh, experience as to how, how they would solve it. Because there's a good chance that this is not the first time this problem would have occurred. So 
other lawyers would have found a solution for it. So that's one. It's like it's like embarking on a totally different degree. So I would not go into practice with the attitude that oh I'm fully equipped, and um, and some and some especially those who do very very well may may be inclined to have a little bit of arrogance about them, but you quickly find that um, this that in practice there is a whole new skill set that you would need to acquire and pretty quick if you want to uh, be fairly successful. As someone currently going through a legal internship, I highly agree. I have no idea what's going on. Whatever is in my textbook is not in real life. Yeah. It's true. That is true. Yeah. I, I should probably mention it is normal to feel clueless. It is normal. Uh, just don't let other people kind of make you feel like, oh, you don't know. Uh, how come you how come you don't know one? Don't don't let that get to you. It's it's normal to feel like next to absolutely clueless. That's that's kind of that's why I say it's like taking embarking on a new degree. Oh, very insightful. Very painful reality as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to direct the brief overview question to Dr. Santita. What happens in order to teach law? What happens after law school? Okay, so after law school, if, <clears throat> if someone's interested to, to teach, I think the first thing is to apply as a, a tutor position. That would be the easiest way to get into the teaching industry. So the easiest would be to go back to your own college since they know, they know you and you know them. So you can apply for a tutor position. You have to go for training, I suppose several months of training or, or sit in in a, in a senior lecturer's class to learn how things are done. And, and of course, from there, logically, uh, you can't just be a tutor for the next several years. You need to, you know, try to go into lecturing as well. And I think the only way of getting into that is uh, by embarking on a master's program, like LLM, for instance, yeah, because I think CLP bar wouldn't be that relevant for uh, teaching a degree, for instance. So if you have a master's, then it will be much more easier to, you know, kind of step up from the tutor role to a lecturer's role. And, and what Mr. Andrew was saying, you know, I have to uh, agree with him. But in terms of teaching, at least whatever that you learn uh, or you've been learning in your degree, you'll be using it in your work. It's exactly the same substance, what you learn, offer acceptance, you know, the same issue, color, carbolic, smoke ball, it just reciting it in a, in a different fashion, perhaps, you know, to, a, to an audience. So you can see this correlation between your undergrad, your degree and your work. So that there won't be this, this huge discrepancy where you have to learn a whole new set of new skills. Of course, there's still skills involved in teaching, but in terms of the substance, I mean, it is the same. You can recycle that information. So I think it's much less stressful <clears throat> than what Mr. Andrew, Mr. Andrew makes Totally a great point. It's, 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 it's totally different in practice, but I think teaching at least it's the same. Like, you know, A-level students tell me, oh, I did law for A-levels. I learned the uh, English legal system. I learned contract. It should be easier in year one, which makes sense, you know, because you, you know the basic invitation to treat, offer acceptance, you know, so you go to year one, you hear the same terms, you, you feel confident. So I think, yeah, so the, the transition from being a student to a tutor wouldn't be that, you know, grave in that sense. So it's quite easy just to, to move on 
yeah, so tutor and then, I don't know, master's and if that's your, your calling and then that's it. You just proceed to do it then. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned LLM because it seems like it's a less popular option for people to go to after graduating. So based on my understanding, what you're trying to say is CLP and BPTC, they're more practical based, like civil procedure, so on and so forth, like how the legal system actually works and how we practice. Uh, how we apply all that practical knowledge, while LLM is more substance-based. Yes, uh, because for instance, oh. if you were to apply for a position in a, let's say in a, you know, a, a big college, for instance, or a university, they would ask for a degree and master's. So they won't be checking your bar or your, your CLP. And well, oh. I, I'm going to say this, uh, I, I knew someone who had a degree from uh, Cardiff, and masters as well, I think from Cardiff. No, masters from Cardiff, yes. And and bar BPTC can't recall from okay from where. And when she asked for an increment based on her uh, bar, she she was told, oh, in the teaching industry, bar isn't relevant. Bar isn't relevant. It's irrelevant. Okay, yeah. <laughs> she she cried to me like, I I invested so much of money studying the bar. And my boss tells me that it doesn't help me in my teaching career. Masters does, PhD does, uh, but not, you know, CLP or bar. And I was like, okay, it's kind of true. Unless you're teaching bar, of course, you have to go to the UK or you're teaching CLP, then maybe, of course, CLP will help you to be a good lecturer for CLP. But if you're doing undergraduate degree, masters, these are the prerequisites, I suppose. Yeah, so masters is a prerequisite, they will definitely ask you for LLM. And if you go to a bigger varsity, they'll ask you for, I don't know, PhD, are you still enrolling for one? Are you in the midst of doing it? Are you completing it soon? So there can be other requirements as well. Well, law students, you heard that if you want to go into teaching, don't take the bar. It's a waste of money, waste of effort. You're better, you're better oh. off with masters. Okay, I, I think you... you, you <laughs> okay, just, just kidding, just kidding. Yeah, it's, no, okay, no. It's, it's a bit exaggerated, you see? Okay. Mm. No, oh. what, I meant, what I meant was, if you don't mind, just let me uh, go on a little bit more. No, go on, go on. Go it's ahead. very difficult for, for someone to decide, you know, uh, from the beginning, am I going to be a practitioner or an academician? I think Ms. Andrew will agree as well. It's all about going through the experience and then seeing whether you are suitable are you are you cut out for it i i went through practice i i chambered and i i kind of sucked at it honestly i kind of sucked at it okay for some reasons i'll, I'll probably share later and i knew that that wasn't my uh you know forte or that wasn't my calling or it wasn't something i was equipped to do okay and despite my competency and whatnot but i didn't feel I want to do it you know so you, you can't just say oh don't do the bar do master you know yeah so you don't want to make you know, mistakes in life. So a lot of students come to me and ask me, you know, uh, I, I don't want to plan. I, I don't plan to practice. You know, I'll never practice. I hate practice. Should I skip the bar? Should I skip CLP just to a master's? And I'm like, you know, how would you know if something is not made for you if you never tried it? Yeah, so students come to me and, and they have this definitive mindset, I will never practice. And I'm like, that is very dangerous yeah so my advice is they should do the CLP or the bar go go, go in chamber practice for a year if you, if you think you can survive and then if you think this is not what you are supposed to do then I, I think these days you can do a BPTC and a master's at the same time I think they offer this you know collaborative program I think you pay a little bit more of course you struggle a lot more but at least you get 
you know, dual qualifications for the same length of time. And I think then, then you decide, you know, if practice is meant for me or, you know, in-house counsel in a bank, MNC, or I don't know, back to teaching, for instance. Yeah, so that's my point. Everyone, did you hear that? That was experience speaking. <laughs> I am a tiny law student. But yeah, it's, it's very common for us to have this very binary thinking because for us, like law is like a high cost degree and CLP is going to think another hole in our bank account. PTPN, PTPTN is probably going like, to drain our savings dry. So it's like that's why we have that really binary thing going on. But it's great to know that we should not be having that. Okay, so thank you so much for sharing, Mr. Andrew and Dr. Sanjita. The next question will be for Mr. Andrew. How long did you practice before choosing to enter academia? Actually, I wouldn't say I've entered academia. I, I still, in a sense, practice except in-house. Um, it's just that I, I've always enjoyed teaching. I started doing it uh, immediately after my LLB. I offered, uh, went to talk to Mr. Rajan, like, hey, you know, I've got a pretty good set of notes, fairly confident I can convey the message. Uh, how about, you know, hiring me? And he actually did, you know, we <laughs> didn't, didn't do that much. He, he, I thought he'd do a bit more vetting <laughs> before, before, before bringing. Uh, but but uh, thanks to him, uh, the opportunity arose. And I enjoy it a lot. So I guess I have a foot on each side. And I do enjoy teaching a lot. If I had to choose one, though, I, it would be a tough choice. Let's just say that. Um, but to answer your question, it was it was uh, immediate. I, I just wanted to do it uh, for some additional income initially, um, and and uh, I've always kind of liked teaching in general. So it it started immediately after my uh, after my after my after my LB. Uh, if if you're wondering if there was something that triggered like 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 Dr. Sanjita. Had uh, I'm, I'm assuming a uh, particular experience which triggered her to finally realize that academia is the win. I, I didn't have such a moment, <laughs> if that's what you're trying to get at. Yeah. But yeah, why don't we kind of take a magnifying glass and look a bit closer at each experience of practice in comparison to academia? So let's start with Dr. Sanjita. What are the experiences that you can only gain through academia? Not practice. I think what I wanted to share with you is, is something different from what you were asking me, which I think would make more sense if you don't mind me. Exploring. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Uh, the experience that I I I've gained and I'm still gaining from um, teaching is is when my phone lights up and I get texts from my uh, students on the exam release date, i.e., next week, 16 August, for UL and then students go like, oh, prof, oh, oh doctor, you know, I, I passed your paper and, oh, I got a B plus, or I got an A and, you know, I could not have done this without your help. All lies, all lies, by the way, they're just, you know, buttering us up, but that's something you can never get. Okay, maybe clients will text you, oh, thank you, you know, uh, my dear counsel, you helped me win the divorce case. Those are doubts. It's much less practice. Yeah, because they pay good money for you fair service, so they won't say thank you. But when it comes to students, the, the gratitude is so genuine. And, and, you know, that kind of feeling you can't buy with money when someone says thank you for 
you know, helping us, your notes, your, your jokes or your, your wisdom. But anyways, yeah, so I, I look forward to this kind of things, you know, like just getting a random text like, thanks, prof, you know, it's been amazing. I got a B plus. So I, I, I assume I'll fail. I pass. Thank you, you know. You, you cannot get this kind of satisfaction. Money can't buy this kind of thing. Wow, that's actually, you know, that makes a lot of sense now because I had an A-level lecturer who was dead set on being a lecturer. So she took an L, she took uh, LLB, then straight away took LLM. And right after she finished, she came back to MCKL to teach. And you can just see her face light up. And I'm like, why are you, why are you so happy? None of us are answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it makes sense now. It makes sense now because after the exams, all of us did thank her and she did, she did feel very happy. Okay, so what about, uh, what about you, Mr. Andrew? What do you think are experiences that can only gain through practice? Fighting people, maybe? Oh, actually, I had a point. <laughs> okay, let, let me, let me, since I have a foot in both worlds, on the academic side, what I really like, which I almost never get in practice, is that there, there are times in academia where you can really dive really deep into a particular legal issue, particular point of law. So I remember um, in my class, we went really deep into um, director's duties, breach of conflict of duty, uh, conflict of interest, and then that whether that warrants uh, a constructive trust and why not. In, in practice, there are also very interesting moments. Um, this is not my personal experience, but anecdotally from someone else. So if I could just give you an example, they're very creative ways people solve problems which tangentially are solved using the law so in my case contracts so what happened was um so let's say there's a client right that wants to subscribe to a particular software so there's a contract for this software you pay the subscription fee and you know as your lawyer you go through the reps and warranties um, you make sure the IP indemnities are there. In particular, that um, you want the software solution provider to warrant that in using this software, it won't infringe some third party's IP, right? So then they finish off this contract. A month later comes another contract for so-called an additional feature to this software that this um, software solution provider was giving for free to this client. Um, he went through the contract and found that none of the standard reps and warranties that you'd expect, in particular the third-party IP uh, warranty, were there. So there were none. Um, naturally, of course, you know, doing his job, he inserted all those, you know, free or not, you, you, we still should not be infringing third-party IP. And the other side pushed back, pushed back hard. Uh, and like, no, uh, we can't give you warranties. Like, why not? These are standard warranties in a, a software contract. And like, no, no, no. The reason uh, uh, we don't agree to give this warranty is because we're giving you this for free. So uh, we discussed this and realized that that's still not a justification. So what we think, we, we never discovered for sure, but what we think is that if you understand software, they can be in different modules, right? A software can have several modules. There may have been this particular module, which was problematic, which may just infringe someone's third-party IP. And they didn't want to warrant that it would not, right? So they gave you, they separated it into a separate contract for which they said this contract's free. 
and therefore we won't give you this wrapped and warranties. So we thought that that's sneaky, but very clever. Like okay, that's true. That's yes. true. So not none of that. That the 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 I had to take my hat off to the legal counsel and the tech guy who came up with this. They must have worked together very well. And this solution is nothing. There's nothing legal about this solution. This was purely a practical solution to a practical problem. So so those are that we. That was one of the more interesting things I've seen in practice. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. Like we've always heard, legal industry is you know not just as I said, it's not it's not just the textbook stuff. This is clearly not something from the textbook. It's a bit scary to be honest. So I have no idea what software. I have no idea what software. Is. Speaking of LLMs, right? There are two types of LLMs. There's a general LLM where you basically breeze through everything, and there are specific LLMs from specific subjects. Is there a significant difference between the two, or is it just okay to take whichever? a very good question. Uh, I, I believe in the in the past, uh, masters uh, in law used to be general, especially mm. from University of Malaya, for instance, okay, mm. or even from University of London. I think more recently, colleges they have been you know coming up with masters in commercial law, masters in LLM, specifying in corporate law, for instance. So it is more of a new trend. So it, it could be something that students may want to explore. But, but I think th th this is the point, okay? When I did my master's, uh, let's be honest, I learned nothing. Yeah, okay, come on. <laughs> there goes my next question. <laughs> okay, come on. Mr. Andrew would know. We came from a UL background, okay? The, the dexterity involved in studying for UL is, is you know, how do I put it into words? Okay, it's you know, it, it puts you through a lot of stress, and you have learned four subjects a year in total, you know, 12 subjects in three years, and then you go and do a master's, which is still very rudimentary, elementary, you know. So, if you're doing a specific master's in commercial law, for instance, then you're, you're, you're basically making it even more niche, it's just one area, commercial law, for instance. and what are the odds that when you come to uh, the teaching industry, you're going to get to teach commercial law per se? There may be no opening for commercial law. You have to do contract or evidence or a different paper, right? So how is it going to help you, you know, to, to be a better lecturer or to have greater knowledge in that particular area? So my master's was, uh, it, it was uh, general, but there was a bit of a specification uh, in intellectual property. So I, I did that, okay, more, but I won't say specialized in IP, but I chose more IP papers like trademarks, copyright, designs, because the lecturers were better, obviously, and I wanted to, you know, experience, uh, I think the, the dean of the law school, so she was teaching one paper and I, I heard about, you know, her style. I was thinking, let's, let's give this a shot. So I, I think a general master's is uh, equally good enough. And, and just to... to to recap what Mr. Andrew was saying earlier when he said that a degree and a CLP, you know, it's just one aspect of going into practice. It is somewhat the same when it comes to teaching as well. Of course, I, I was saying earlier, you can use the substance from your law degree to teach, but the substance from masters, you can't really use it in, in terms of uh, teaching. Maybe the skills you acquire while studying masters, like doing research, writing a dissertation, 
Okay, the kind of skills you can use in, in helping your students do more research and you know prepare better courseworks for UKT, for instance, but a general master's is, is more than sufficient, you know, to get yourself into a good college and be a tutor and then from there be a lecturer as well. So I, I don't really see you know this this huge difference between a specialized LLM or a general one. It's just a passport, you know, to, to get into teaching, I suppose. Yeah. That's definitely a very interesting answer. Oh. Speaking of which, right, I think right one of the things that you need to learn as well when transitioning to academia is something I would assume. It seems like you will need to have like good communication with your student. You need to learn how to relate to them. It would seem is that that would be uh, I think one of the most important uh, you know traits a, a lecturer need to you know to have. I mean, come on, imagine okay, students' perception. Mm. Uh, of a lecturer or let's say a doctor a professor or she's going to have gray hair a little bit okay you know she's going to be 70 years old with a stick or you know with a granny dress walking into class you know they have that kind of idea you know and then they see you and then they go like okay not bad and then you start speaking you know in, in their lingo which of course is not difficult because you're dealing with students okay so Naturally speaking, you know, you're, you're adapting to their style, TikTok and Bibi Rexa and God knows what else I have to learn, you know, which is not difficult these days, just, you know, have Instagram and go through the reels and you will know, pick up all these things. So yes, I agree, you know. It's really good. But um, speaking of relating to students, have you had any difficulties trying to do so and how did you overcome it, especially in the pandemic context, you know? Okay, I, I think uh, if you're a senior lecturer and you've been doing this for long enough, it's really simple because we are, you know, I wouldn't say gifted, but through experience, you know, you learn how to relate to students. But if you're a junior lecturer, a tutor, and you go to a class for the first time, you might have some difficult students, you know, who try to push you to the edge and see whether you can withstand pressure. I don't remember if I went through that because my first year teaching was some eons ago. Uh, but uh, in terms of, I think, during the pandemic, it was a switch. We were having classes physically in March, remember, was revision. Then we went into a student online class. So the students were still the same students, and we met them for the last eight months. It was really easy. But the new batch, September, was brand new students, no cameras turned on. But you find a way, I don't know, you just need to be warm. I think once you're warm, you're, you're pleasant, you're happy, you know, you don't just start talking about the law immediately, you know. My style is like, you know, do we have to do this today? That's my first sentence. Do we have to do this today? Like, seriously, what are we doing here? That's it. And that gets everyone cracking up and, you know, probably letting loose a little bit. So I think lecturers know what exactly to say and, you know, exact words in the atmosphere to cool students down and make things easy. It comes with experience, I suppose, you know. I, I wouldn't say all lecturers, like, still see. <laughs> Some lecturers who were, like, more sinfully boring and just could not relate. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it, it, I had to work at it. For me, I had to work at it. It doesn't come naturally to all lecturers, I think. Yeah, I, for me, I, I had to work at it a bit, a bit, at least, yeah. Oh, I would be interested to hear how you worked at it. <laughs> <laughs> Took some thinking through. It was using more and more examples. I, I, I realized that like while um, concepts, uh, you know, I could read it and like dwell upon it and get it. 
but not so when you try to convey it. I think you have to use more and more examples. So I, I, I had to work at getting more and more examples. So my favorite example in company law is imagine you have a strawberry business, make, selling strawberries, stuff. It's just make, make the business itself simple. Like, ah, okay, I see. So therefore, that is an outsider versus a shareholder is an insider, right? Okay. So stuff like that. I, I, but I had to work at it. It didn't, it didn't come that's, that. That's actually very interesting. You know what? Because there's this saying that goes on, if you can't simplify it to a five-year-old, you don't know the subject matter at all. Have it's you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, that's it's great. That. it's great. Honestly, when I revise, I just simplify it to myself. I'm like, oh, this guy don't sign contract, no contract law. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, it's very great. Now, back to Mr. Andrew. Since you have like both foot in both sides, I'm assuming there's a lot of work from both sides. Is that true? Like, there's clients coming in here and you have students to deal with. So how do you deal with that? And would you recommend it to people? Or would you recommend we just focus on one area? I would not recommend it if you don't enjoy either. Um, thankfully for me, strangely, I enjoy both. Um, teaching is, is, is very fulfilling for me. Um, but what pays the bill is my real job. <laughs> that, that, uh, thankfully, I, I also kind of enjoy that. <laughs> quite a bit so if you if you don't enjoy you kind of have to enjoy both or it's not doable because it does take up time um for one uh my classes are on saturday so that's my saturday's burnt um coming up to exams there are you know exam preparation that takes uh more time so there is no balance you just have to find the time so if, if there are things if you don't enjoy it then you find that um you are sacrificing your time for you, you'll be your mindset would be like oh i'm sacrificing my time for things like that i could do uh, elsewhere and all that so you find that you're thinking that a lot then you know then you probably shouldn't because i would i wouldn't say that there's a balance you you try to be as efficient as possible um where prep time becomes less, you, you try as much as you can to lessen prep time and be as efficient as you can, but it still is going to take time. So it's going to take X number of hours. It's going to take X number of hours. It's going to come out of somewhere. Something else has got to give. If that something else is not something you're willing to give, it's not for you. I, I think it's just that simple. Looks like I have a lot of thinking to do until I'm 30. <laughs> That's a lot of thinking. <laughs> oh, that's very insightful. Honestly, I I've, I know I've said this so many times, but I really expected like objective answers. But now that we've gone through the experiences, the advices, the ups, now we shall go to spilling the tea on the downs. <laughs> so, on the downs, right? Is there like a bad side? Of course there is, right? But how bad is the bad side? of you know practice academia what are like the red flags so on and so forth would either of you can start I think there's a bad side I mean teaching there's there's uh it's, it's so fulfilling the bad side the bad side the bad side maybe if you're faced you know with with students who are let me give an example to you okay I won't name the cohort 
but uh, yeah, <laughs> oopsie daisy. I, I, I had um, a really bad experience with a, a cohort uh, recently where the numbers were small because that was numbers uh, enrolled for that cohort and no one turned on their cameras during online classes and you won't even get hi, hello, good afternoon. You won't even get uh, thank you. Okay, so I literally spoke to myself for uh, two hours uh, in a class. And that's the only class I've, I've been through in, in that kind of environment because I'm always, you know, this lively, happy person, engaging, sharing personal stories. And I did check with other lecturers who taught the same batch as well. And they concurred that, yes, this batch is something different unique yeah so that can happen in online classes but in I think face-to-face class you can still engage with them because you can still look into their eyes and you can still you know tease them and have fun that, that was the only issue I think was bad in terms of online and students who don't give you any kind of feedback and I asked them questions like you understand still nothing <laughs> and I was doing revision for the exam and they were supposed to ask me what's going to appear for the exam, would this be essay or problem question? Nada, nil, nothing. And I was just like, okay, guys, all the best. I'm never gonna see you again. You know, that was my reaction. I tried to stay calm and cool. I was, you know, like it was a Monday. Can you it was it was a Monday, Monday class, first class of the week. And it starts off with a downer. So you know, yeah, that's it. But other than that, I think What's the worst that can happen? A student who throws a question at you and he read a new case that you don't know of, which happens, okay, it happens. I'm not a walking encyclopedia. So if, if you know a new case that you came across, I'll say, okay, we'll discuss during break time. Thank you for addressing the matter. You know, there's always ways to, you know, make the other person feel good at the same time and not just put them down. So I think, I think from my perspective, teaching, it's all good. It's all good. There's no huge, I think Mr. Andrew will have a lot to share about uh, setbacks in the actual litigation world because trust me, mm, there's mm-hmm. a lot. It's okay, I know. I'm in the litigation department. I'm suffering. <laughs> but before, ahead, we, before we move on to Mr. Andrew, maybe mm. a, a bit of a personal question on my end. So, not very personal. It's more like, it's more like uh, it has to do with accessibility. In a sense, like I'm a neurodivergent student, as in, uh, you know, do you know what neurodivergent is? Like ADHD, autism, uh, ADHD, autism, basically, okay. um, the spectrum of disorders where you don't think like a normal person. So, okay. on, just to put it very crude, like that. So, um, personally, for me, I find it very hard to focus in class or even catch up with classes or catch up with deadlines. And have you ever had to deal with students like me or? Have you never had that experience? And if you have, how did you kind of deal with them? Um, it's an interesting thing I would like to ask. Okay. Well, I, I think I, I would have had students with, with uh, you know, similar medical conditions in my class, but the matter was never raised. I, I don't think the matter ever comes across to management or comes to, to us until the student goes for exam. Then they will request for extension, time extension, then medical reports are submitted. Then you would see, okay, whether this is, you know, an ADHD issue or whatever other, you know, medical issues you have. But I think until then, we don't know. And until the student doesn't come and share your issue with us, how, how, come on, okay, UKT class, we have like 
250 students in a class. I don't even see, I can't even see beyond half of the class, honestly, because, you know, it's that big, right? You have like a huge, you know, classroom in uh, PJ campus. I only see the first half. I don't get to see the second half. And if you don't come up and tell me a condition, I would never know what I can do for you, you know? So I think the burden lies on the student to, maybe they feel ashamed, you know, for sharing this kind of medical condition. They might think the lecturer might judge them, but why would, why would we, you know, our, our kids, you know, might, might have similar, you know, diagnosis in the future. It happens to everyone these days, right? So I think if a student is experiencing a specific, uh, you know, I won't say mental impairment, but a, a, a mental condition, physical condition, if you want to put it, they should voice it out at least to management, not directly to us, but to management. And then we will get an insight. Oh, directly walk up to us and tell us, you know, miss, I'm this miss I'm you know that you know I see letters upside down you know say something and then maybe you know we could spend more time or give you more attention I don't know we could work something out mm. so if any students are listening to this if you have any pre-existing conditions that may you know cause anything in class you know let your lecturers know beforehand they're human too they might freak out like Mr. Andrew so like <laughs> yeah keep that in mind all right now let's move the question to Mr. Andrew Spill the tea about litigation. Oh, by the way, I didn't do litigation. I, I never did litigation. Oh, oh shoot, sorry. Um, corporate commercial. Corporate contracts. commercial. I do contracts. Yeah. Contracts, yeah. contracts. <laughs> uh, well, I won't call it the bad side, but I think expectations need to be adjusted. Um, people don't want to hear it, but I think Firstly, we have to acknowledge that there is an oversupply of uh, law graduates. Uh, that said, there is not an oversupply of good lawyers. Those are in high demand. Good lawyers are in high demand. Okay, um, but, but uh, there, there, there is an oversupply of, of lawyers in general. So, tip number one: be good. Be good at be good at it if you want to be a lawyer. So then, then you'll be in high demand. So that's it. Um, I feel, although students don't say it expressly, I, I feel students have an expectation that, in particular, an expectation regarding income, which is understandable. I, I no, no one does anything for free. And, and you, you try to gear your qualifications towards, well, one, your interest, and two, hopefully that it, it, it derives you a, a, a decent income, like, you know, as... as uh, as high as, as, as you can possibly get. So the, the, the downside, I would say, is that in the early years, no one recognizes you as good until you have X years of experience, right? Because that's just how it works. You, you, you can kind of only get very good at something only after, after X years, short of being some sort of prodigy. So in the early years, a lot of, I think, people get a little disillusioned um, and quit when they should persevere. And con the converse also happens. But what happens, I think, is that um, because there is an oversupply, and whilst you are good, it's not immediately recognized within the first few years of your practice. It, you you, you kind of need a couple of years to prove yourself and it will take a couple of years it's not going to be two years three years it's more like four five six years so there is a period of 
four, five, six years where you can't help but compare, say, your income to your friend who did a different degree. Um, then you start to get very disheartened at what you're getting. But that's kind of due to the market. Um, employers being employers, that's it, there are very good employers out there. But as you would expect in the market, where an, where an employer has um, an abundance of potential employees to pick from, there's, there's, there's never a shortage of employees. You then can expect in the early years, they tend not to pay the general junior batch very high. So I think a lot of students go in expecting that they can buy a BMW in their third year of practice. Not really. Um, or, or, you know, they, the, you know, the luxury watch and the designer goods are, are, are on the way fairly soon after you get there. It, it doesn't quite happen. But you have to persevere. What you need to do is to determine whether you are better than the rest. Right. If you are, then the legal profession is something you can stick to and persevere with and rewards uh, will come provided you make uh, certain wise choices um, in the later years of your practice. But it will be a struggle. There's no BMW, there's no Rolex in the first three, four, five years of your practice, generally speaking. Short of starting out on your own, which involves risks. Right, involves um, career risk, financial risk, and all the other things that, that rely on you deriving an income. All those are put at risk if you were to start your own firm. Thank you very much for sharing your insights on academia and practice. Very, not two different worlds. Some skills do overlap. And it's actually interesting to know that because, you know, we're so used to seeing practices in the other end of the spectrum and then the academy is on the other end of the spectrum. Okay, I'll just quickly wrap it up. With many questions being answered, I believe that our listeners are now more well-informed about the differences between the practice and, acad and academia and also the overlaps, which interestingly, I myself was surprised. Before we bring our podcast to an end, would our guest speakers like to offer any quick, short advices to those who are still unsure whether they should go here or go there? Anything? If there's nothing, we can go on as well. It's okay. Uh, okay, can I just go first? Uh, oh, sure. I, I think no one, no one should decide, you know, from year one or year two. If you need to make a definitive decision, you should do it after year three. And I mean, for, for, me, for me, for instance, uh, I knew that I, I wouldn't practice for long. I, I knew people I was, you know, I don't know, just something in me told me it's not meant for you. And it was true enough, it was true enough, you know, I just didn't fit in in that particular uh, description. So it depends on individual. If you have this strong voice in your head telling you practice is the way to go or teaching is the way to go, then just stick to what your, you know, inner voice tells you. But if you're confused, then complete the procedure get a CLP done, your bar, go in chamber, and then check out the legal world. I mean, you're so young, okay? It's CLP 23, chamber 24, 25. You can make mistakes. You can afford to make mistakes. And if you think practice is what is suitable, you continue. If not, you know, so many options, you know, banking, in-house counsel, lecturing, I don't know, do an MBA, venture in something else, you know? So if you're not sure, go through the whole process. If you're sure, 
stick to what you're sure then. You know, I was sure I wanted to do. Well, I did CLP. Uh, to, to be honest, uh, after my degree, I wanted to do an MBA actually because I wasn't going to practice. I wasn't going to practice. But because um, I, I got a first class honours and my CLP was paid off by uh, the college and the law firm, they paid uh, everything. My mom said, go on, you know, Sanjita, it's, it's free. Go and do CLP. I said, okay, you know, I'll go and do CLP. And then, oh, you know, they're paying well for chambering. Just go, nine months, no big deal, you know. So I, I got stuck in that momentum because it was free and free and free. But not for that, I would have never done my CLP or because my mind was set on teaching. But no regrets, okay, teaching is my calling. I love it. I never look back and say, oh my God, I could have been richer today, more famous, more fancier. No, never regret life's decision. You know, take a part, choose it. Give your all, put your passion inside, put your effort, don't give up, Miss Andrew said, okay, and then just pursue whatever that makes you happy. Simple as that. I might have to ask you about the free CLP. <laughs> but it's okay, topic for another day. Topic for another day. But thank you. Yeah, that's actually very interesting to see. Like, hmm, even the most steadfast of people can steer off their path. And eventually find their way back. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's like it's life, right? Yes, it is. It is. Mm. I think a lot of law students have that steadfast mindset because you know you have to be decisive in law. But it's great to know that we don't actually need to be. We have to be more flexible and adaptable, and that's more important. True. What about you, Mr. Andrew? I agree more with with San, uh, Sanjita's mind. Be very short. I, I just couldn't be really couldn't agree more. You're already doing your LB. It's not a bad choice. Most would say it's a good choice, right? Don't, don't start thinking now, you know, practice or academia or non-legal or, or non entirely. Don't think about that right now. You're already in LB. It's, it's really, really not a bad degree. Most would say it's a good degree. So focus in the now. I think a lot of students like to think too far ahead, you know, oh, what will my life be? When will I get the BMW? Will it be fully electric or will it be a hybrid? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a bit too far down the line now, okay? Focus in the now. Your job now, you do have a job now. Your job now is to do as well as you can for the LB and then CLP or bar, whatever the case. Just, just do that. Just do that. Uh, my mistake was whenever I didn't do well in exams were the years which I just was distracted by thinking about you know, what my life will be, what career choice should I make, should I practice this, should I practice that. But like, hello, those decisions are a number of years away. Focus in the now. Those, the years which I didn't do very well in exams were the years which I was very distracted. To add on, I would just add that, don't, I think, I don't know if you would agree, Dr. Sanjita, but I would say that don't dive into an LLM or any form of master's immediately. I would say that um, go into practice first, right? Or if you if 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 you if you could teach part time somewhere at the same time, try it, try it out. Go into the field first before you decide to kind of get further qualification. That that seems to be uh, that seems to hold true. A lot of people who in the company that I work with who I respect and are, are, are real high flyers did that they 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 never dived into some masters or some specialty immediately 
they went into the field first and where they figured that a further uh, qualification would supplement or help them, then they, did. they were very, very targeted as to what further education they, they, they wanted. So if you've decided that you want to go into academia, then by all means, um, uh, uh, master's, PhD, write the most amazing thesis ever. But, but before that, I would say just go into the field first. There's, there's no amount of advice that I think any of the speakers here can give you that would substitute you actually just go and do it. <laughs> it's... I agree. I agree. You know what? It sounds like I'm reading from a script, which I am, sort of. But that generally is great advice. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. It's very eye-opening. I genuinely enjoyed the session. I was... Mm. I thought I would be dreading the hour I'll be talking to people I've never met before. But honestly, I've learned so much, really. So uh, thank you so much for being here. We would like to thank our guest speakers, Dr. Sanjita and Mr. Andrew, for taking their time to talk about their experiences as a practicing lawyer and pathway they would like to take. We hope that this episode was beneficial for you listeners. Until then, stay tuned for our next episode of Legal Lounge.